Y'all made it back. Well, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, thank you for this day that you have made. This is your day, the Lord's day, and we're able to come. Thank you, Lord, that we are able to come publicly and to gather publicly and worship you publicly. Lord, we don't want to take that for granted. Thank you for your favor on us, and thank you for Calvary Chapel here in La Habra, Lord, for being willing to address this really important topic of sexuality and gender. Lord, help us to do this full of grace and full of truth, for it's in the matchless, beautiful name of Jesus we pray. People of God said, amen. Well, if you were able to be here uh, this morning, you were able to hear um, from my mom and my dad, and if you by chance missed that or if you're watching online, um, we do have uh, the, let's see, uh, my books, The Testimony, and then my book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, and I also did mention the video series that's coming out. It's the 12 Lesson 36 videos, and that's for parents and their teens. So you could go scan this QR code or just go to holysexuality.com and put in your email address, and we're expecting to release in a month, um, but we'll probably inform you guys in uh, probably in a week or two about what are um, the exact dates and how you guys can have access to that. Well, as I touched on my testimony uh, in this morning, um, addressing sexuality, you know, for us as Christians, the question should be, well, now what? How do we share the good news of Jesus Christ? How do we share the truths of God and the truths that He communicates on biblical sexuality, that sex is reserved for marriage, and marriage is a man and a woman, how do we communicate that in a way that actually shows that this is good news? This is not constricting, nor is it somehow closed-minded. This is good news. All of God's truth is good news. But it doesn't seem like good news to the world right now. It almost seems like bad news. And we haven't done a good job at communicating God's truth as being good news. I, I would say in general, we have a pretty poor reputation when it comes to how we're perceived by the world. There is a survey that asks young Americans, what do you think about Christians? And what they found is actually quite surprising. Christians, we are viewed to be from the bottom, confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and you know what's at the very, very top? Anti-homosexual. 91% of those not raised in the church believe that we are anti-homosexual. Eight out of ten of our own youth and young adults believe that we are anti-gay, against gay people. And that is wrong. The gospel is not against anyone. It's for people, 
for people turning to Christ and turning from their sins, but it's for people and so should we be for people. But how can we do a better job at engaging on this very important topic? Well, I'm going to have a lot of notes, and if you would like my notes, you can scan this QR code. I've got a lot of QR codes and stuff like that. If you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. All you need to do is jot down the shortened URL there at the bottom there and there, um, and that will get the same thing. If you're doing it right now on your mobile devices, uh, you'll be asked to maybe sign up for Dropbox. You don't have to sign up for Dropbox. There should be an X in the upper right-hand corner where you could say no, um, but you can view my notes there. And, um, but I'm going to be centering my talk around four, four main points. The first point has to do with our attitude. Before we point our finger at other people, we need to be pointing our finger at ourselves. We need to be first convicted about our own sin first. When I lived as a gay man years ago, I felt Christians were telling me, this is before I became a Christian, telling me as I identified as a gay man, telling gays and lesbians that somehow we deserved a hotter place in hell. That Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for those in the gay community. That's not true. Same-sex relationships are sinful, but it's not the worst sin. But sometimes we treat it like it's the worst sin. Oh, it's an abomination, people will say. And that's true. Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13 clearly say that a man lying with a man or a man lying with a male or a man having sex with a male, that's an abomination. That's not a good thing. But you know what else the Bible calls an abomination? Proverbs chapter 6 says there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination, listing things like lying, cheating, causing dissension, pride. So when was the last time your friend was prideful and he said, you are abomination? Maybe we should. Because when we do, we wouldn't be trivializing sin. Well, but we see it all over the place. And I agree, it's, it's getting worse and worse makes me feel uncomfortable, and definitely, we should never feel comfortable without sin. It's disgusting, people will say. But I wonder when they're more disgusted about someone else's sin and not their own, that that feeling of disgust that they have should be a reminder that it's just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at their own sin. So our sin is just as odious in God's eyes. It's just as bad as in God's eyes than someone else's sin. Because at the end of the day, I want people to know and follow Jesus. But that's never done through a holier-than-thou attitude. Have you ever met anyone who came to Christ through someone who's really prideful? You know, oh, I came to Jesus. This older lady, she shared me the gospel, and she's just so pompous. I've never heard that before. It's gentleness, humility, that, and conviction that draws people, not pride. So first thing, let's begin with conviction and humility. Second, we need to be consistent in three ways. First of all, regarding relationships. What is your relationship status? Are you married or are you single? And there's this huge imbalance right now in the world, and, and, and not only in the world, but in the church, where we say marriage is the only way to be happy and whole, and singleness, oh, I'm so sorry. And there's huge consequences. I mean, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with my gay neighbor? Everything. Because 
if our hope for a gay neighbor or your lesbian loved one is that, number one, they would know and follow Jesus. That, like, that always has to be number one. It's not like, oh, have them to start dating someone of the opposite sex. If they don't know Jesus, they're still lost. So that always has to be number one. Follow Jesus, which means deny yourself, take up your cross, right? I mean, th this is all Bibles, basic Bible knowledge. You know, deny yourself, take up your... You know, we want them, number one, follow Jesus. But through that relationship, they would go and sin no more. And if they go and sin no more, that means they won't be in the same sex relationship, which means they will be single for a period in their life, if not a longer period in their life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive in Christian community today? We need to do better. I see a lot of our young adults that are leaving the faith often on this one issue. And, and they'll explain it like this, it's unfair. I'm like, what's unfair? It's unfair that my gay friend can't be in a relationship and has to be single. Because singleness is unfair, in other words. Singleness is equivalent to loneliness, people will even imply. Or even explicitly, you know, people, you know, single, you know, you want me to be lonely for the rest of my life, people will say. That's, that's what my gay friends tell me. You want me to be lonely for the rest of my life. They're equating singleness with loneliness. But I know that's not true. Singleness is not equivalent to loneliness. As a single man, I know that. I'm 52 years old. I'm, I'm a single man. But I know some people who are unmarried, and they're still miserably lonely. So marriage is not the cure to loneliness. You know what's the cure to loneliness? It begins with a relationship with God. That's a cure, cure to loneliness, not another person. But it's so ingrained in our culture, in the world, and even in the church I taught for 12 years at Moody Bridal Institute. It's pretty crazy what happens on, on campus. As if marriage is the only way to be happy. You know, like parents, when their kids are babies, like they're praying for their future spouse. I mean, I don't think, I don't think that's a bad thing. But what about praying for kids before they get married? Like while they still are single, that they would make Jesus their all in all. Because if we're not praying for our kids during those teenage and, and, and preteen, teenage, and young adults years, that's where the battle really is, and we're praying for, like, later. Almost like we don't, we don't care what happens during their single years. We, you know, we're as if marriage is, is the goal in life. I think sometimes we're at risk of idolizing marriage. That marriage... And, and this is what we need to remind ourselves, that the most deceptive form of idolatry is when we try to worship something good. Marriage is good, but we shouldn't worship it. It's instilled with our little kids. How do all fairy tales end? Well, first they get married, and then they live happily ever after. The end, like no more story to tell here, Sally, that's it. End of story. There's no 10-year checkup. There's no 20-year checkup. I mean, hopefully they're still living happily ever. Actually, hope, hopefully they're still married. But the real lesson we need to be teaching our kids is this. It is not marriage that should bring you ultimate contentment. It is Jesus who should bring you ultimate contentment, whether you're single or whether you're married. And it's, we need to continue 
to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. But I think we're doing that at the expense of singleness. So now singleness at best is a consolation prize. I'm so sorry you're single. We treat singles as projects. They need to be fixed of their singleness, which is why we say, I've got someone, I, I, I want to fix you up with someone. Think about the words we use. I had a good friend who was a missionary in China. She l went right after college as a single woman, and she, she came back five years later from China as a single woman. And, and she, when she was back on furlough, several of her friends would be able to get, you know, she got together with several of her friends, and um, they would all ask her similar questions like, tell me about China, tell me about your future ministry plans. And then it would get to personal things like, are you dating anyone? Do you have anyone special in your life? And each time she was just totally serious. No, not yet. Do you know how some of her friends responded to her? Can I pray for you? It was as if she had cancer. Singleness is not cancer. Singleness is not a curse. But don't we sometimes treat it like it is? We need to look to the Word of God to see what, what does God's Word say about singleness? What does it say about uh, this? And what we realize is that singleness, it's not only does 1 Corinthians 7 say that singleness is good, Paul says that it's a gift. Can you believe that? But let me give you some advice for those in this room or watching who are no longer single and you're married, do not keep reminding your Christian single friends that this is a gift. Because I know very few Christian singles that actually like that verse. I've yet to meet any single that's made it their life verse. You know, sincerely, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, woohoo! <laughs> it's usually the opposite. Like, I have no clue what Paul's talking about here because it doesn't feel like a gift. Actually, what's the return policy in that gift? I think, I think I still got that receipt, you know, like exchange it like a bad Christmas present. And understandably, it's singleness, it's not easy. But I've spoken to some married people and I hear that marriage at times can be difficult. With those difficulties come blessings. In the same way, singleness, it's not easy, but there are some blessings that come with it. But why is it that we only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenges of singleness? See how this is starkly inconsistent and unbiblical? Like this really impacts why I think sometimes we're pushing people away from what is this true message. Why is there so much confusion today? Because we think marriage is the only way to be happy and whole, and we need to tell people that's not true. We think that the only way to feel love is marriage. If that was the case, then Jesus did not experience love. If we think singleness is bad, many people do, many Christians even people think that marriage, uh, being single is bad, if that really is the case, then Jesus is bad. What is the, the proper way? I mean, we need to see that actually both in Christ being single and in Christ being married, they're both good, and you could use that to serve the Lord. And when I'm talking about singleness, I'm not talking about like lifelong singleness, like this, this vocation or this calling of lifelong singleness, because I don't think that's actually grounded in Scripture. I'm just talking about the regular condition of most singles that I know don't want to be single, but they just are single. Can God use them? Definitely. 
Can you find joy in that? In Christ? Definitely. Can you serve the Lord in that? Definitely. Because I don't think we're ready to address sexuality until we first redeem singleness. I see that godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should no longer only emphasize one over against the other. So we need to be convicted or consistent regarding sexuality. And then third, we need to be consistent, re- I'm sorry, consistent regarding relationships. Second, we need to be consistent regarding sexuality. This answers the question like, what is God's standard when it comes to sexuality? Is it heterosexuality? I mean, that might seem logical. The Bible, people will say, promotes heterosexuality. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and. So people are like, obviously, it's heterosexuality. But let's think about that. Is heterosexuality really the goal? Being sexually attracted to some of the opposite sex, being sexually intimate with someone of the opposite sex. Is that the goal? Well, that's a pretty broad definition, so broad that I could be sleeping with half a dozen women, and that's considered heterosexuality. I could be a married guy, and I'm cheating on my wife with another woman. That's also considered heterosexuality. I could be a single guy, and I'm living with my girlfriend, and we have several children together out of wedlock. Three, these three scenarios that I gave you are all sinful in God's eyes. God would never say, this is my standard when it includes sinful behavior. So if it's not heterosexuality, it's not homosexuality, actually this whole framework of heterosexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality, asexuality, all of that, it's the wrong secular framework that we need to set aside. Does it even seem like something that God would want us to do to kind of categorize humanity according to our sexual desires or any desire for that matter? No. It's the wrong framework. So if it's not heterosexuality, not homosexuality, then what is it? Let's use a biblical framework of holy sexuality. What is holy sexuality? Reading through the full counsel of God, there's only two paths that God lays out for us when it comes to sexuality. First path is when you're single, how are you going to live? You're going to be sexually abstinent. The other path is If you marry, and many will marry, and I'm using just the biblical definition of marriage, a man and a woman, if you marry, how are you going to live? You're going to be faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So quite simply, the the definition is chastity in singleness or faithfulness in marriage. Chastity in singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And there was not one term for that. Actually, heterosexuality says nothing about how singles ought to live. There's not one term for it, so I created the term. The term may be new, but the concept is not. The concept is just coming out of the pages of Scripture. And notice that I'm not saying two choices, but these are actually two paths These are two paths that God puts us on. And, you know, it's actually quite correct. Many of the singles that I know did not choose to be single. Singleness actually isn't a choice because I've yet to meet anyone who is born married. We all start out single. Actually, we end up single as well, Jesus says in Matthew 22. We're going to be single in eternity. So I hate to break the news to you, but we're going to be single in eternity. The good news is we will all corporately be wed to the Lamb of God, to to, to Christ. And and we will uh, be the bride of Christ. And we are the bride of Christ. Um, 
So we need to uh, see that it's chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage. And what I like about this term is this term applies to every person. doesn't matter if you're man or woman, young or old, opposite, same, opposite sex attracted, same sex attracted, both or neither. We all need to pursue holiness. See, just the playing field is level. It's holiness. But you might think, well, that's fine, but my neighbor or my loved one can only be single for the rest of his or her life. Not true. Let me tell you a story about a good friend of mine. He lived as a gay man for years, comes to Christ, and he had no interest in the opposite sex, so he was going to be single for the rest of his life. And he was okay with that. He um, was part of a great church. He became really close friends with his other new believer. She was a... Uh, she came from a broken past. She was sexually active when she dated boys. Many of those relationships were a bit toxic. So when she came to Christ, she committed not to date. She was just going to focus on a relationship with God. So the two of them became really close friends, like best friends, because he knew she didn't want to date, and she knew he didn't like girls. So they were like, there was none of that tension that happens. Well, after some time of being best friends, he began noticing some things about her that he hadn't noticed before, like... Her hair, she smelled good, and she had curves. He says, puberty is hard going through once. Try going through puberty twice. <laughs> he got up enough courage, asked her out on a date. After some dating, he asked her to marry him. And on their wedding night, he told his new bride, he said, honey, I can't explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. Holy sexuality. It's sanctification is something that only God can give. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage is a gift from God. Third, we need to be consistent regarding change. What does change look like? Gay to straight? No. Well, what about if a person is no longer tempted in that way? Does this person mean that they haven't been changed? Well, let's think about biblical change. A lot of times people are like, you know, somehow think I don't believe in change. Not true. I don't believe that Freudian change is the way to measure change. Like why are we using Sigmund Freud as our way to measure what change is? I want to use the Bible to define what change is. What does it mean? When a person goes from death to life, unbelief to belief, what does that look like? Does this mean that this believer now is no longer ever, 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 ever going to be tempted with anything? Does that mean, if, or if they do, that means they haven't really been changed or they don't really believe in transformation? Let's just, do we apply that for any other sin struggle? Say a guy was a drunk, comes to Jesus. After years of sobriety, he admits like he's still tempted to get drunk, but he doesn't. Would we tell him, you have not been changed? You haven't been fully transformed. We need to lay some hands on you. You need some deliverance. I hope not, because the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh and says yes to Christ. You see, change it is not the absence of temptations. Change is the spirit-wrought ability to 
be holy even in the midst of temptations. God's faithfulness is not shown by taking our struggle away. God is not a genie in the bottle to give us an easy life. Sometimes, many times, following Jesus, it's not easy. But it's worth it. And when we set people up and say, oh, no, you won't ever be tempted again, I think that's not actually helping people. You will be tempted, but we have the Holy Spirit, amen, that empowers us to say no to temptations. So we need to equip people and and actually uh, prepare them for the temptation. I mean, this is, Jesus says this, temptations are sure to come. But some people believe that we just won't be tempted. We will be tempted, but now because we know Christ, the Holy Spirit is abiding in us to actually help us to live holy lives. You will be tempted. Jesus was tempted in every way, but he is without sin, and he's the Holy One. And many of these points, especially these last points regarding sexuality, it's not gay to straight. The focus needs to not be so much on are there change, you know, of our temptations. Now, I think our desires, our sinful desires can stop by God's Spirit, but that doesn't mean that you won't no longer be tempted. See, there's a difference between being tempted and giving in to temptation that turns to desire. But these wrong, you know, these kind of, this, uh, the wrong categories of heteros- you know, homosexuality to heterosexuality, that's a wrong category, that's a wrong framework, but also change, no longer being tempted. That's this older framework that we need to be more, ca- we need to be careful of because that, that actually distracts from the gospel. Where do we get our power? The gospel. Where do we get our power? Christ. The other framework, it's the wrong diagnosis. If you're not feeling well, if you're sick, you want to go to the doctor or the nurse or urgent care to get a correct diagnosis. A correct diagnosis leads to a correct treatment. An incorrect diagnosis leads to an incorrect treatment. And we have not been diagnosing this correctly. Even in the church today, you probably will hear of people who will, and even today, put a lot of the teaching on this. You've probably heard something like this. It goes like this. The root causes of homosexuality are an absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse or trauma in one's childhood. Anyone hear stuff like that before? Whenever you hear those things, there should be a red flag that is distracting away from the real problem. Absentee father, dominant mother, or trauma, or whatever in our past. Now, those things definitely influence us negatively. Those things have a negative impact on us. That's not what I'm arguing. But an influence is not a cause. Can I say it again? An influence is not a cause. Because when we make those things, you know, things in our past, you know, maybe whatever it is, in our childhood, maybe you had the wrong idea, whatever those things, those things have a negative influence on us, but it's not the cause. Let me explain really clearly. 
all of us, we're all sinners, right? What's the root cause of your sin? Whatever it is, whether it's, you know, you might struggle with being tempted to gossip or struggle with your temptation with pornography or whatever that struggle is. What's the root cause of that? Is it our parents? Can we blame, you know, because my dad didn't go to every one of my soccer games, that's why I struggle with pornography. Does that sound like that's biblical? You, you know actually where that's, what that's rooted in? Sigmund Freud. And too often, Christians and Christian leaders are more busy chasing after Freud than chasing after Jesus. You're not going to be set free from Sigmund Freud. He's not going to have any answers for your sin struggle. Instead of following Freud, let's follow this book, the Word of God. This book tells us that same-sex relationships are sinful. By the way, Freud does not call this sinful. He calls it actually quite normal, just another variation of humanity. This book calls this behavior and even the desires as sin. Okay, so now that we have the right category of sin, let's just ask the question, what's the root cause of any sin? Any sinful behavior, any sinful desire, what's the root cause? Not our childhood history. That can be an influence. What's the root cause of any sinful behavior? Our own sin nature. The more we try to place the blame, the more we distract from the answer. I mean, the world is placing the blame on everything else, right? I mean, isn't everything about victimhood? Are we going to play into that same game when it comes to sexuality? Oh, it's because of my dad. Oh, I have this because of whatever. The right diagnosis is this is sin and my sin nature. You see, sin is the problem. Jesus Christ is the answer. And why is this so important? Because as Christians... We have, for the past 10, 20, 30 years, blamed parents. And I hear a lot of times, even Christian speakers, they're like, oh, I'm not, we're not blaming parents. But I'm like, you are. Absentee father, dominant mother, that's blaming parents. I know so many times parents who have prodigals, whether they identify as gay or lesbian or whatever prodigal, they're beating themselves up. What? Did I do wrong? If I only would have just done this or I didn't do this, I, I, what did I do wrong? If that's you right now, hear me very, very carefully. It's not your fault. Perfect parenting never guarantees perfect children. Look at Adam and Eve. Didn't they have a perfect father? They did. Didn't they have a perfect environment, right? A lot of times we want to have this perfect environment for our kids, you know, padding around all the corners, every, you know, everything perfect, right? The Garden of Eden, you can't get more perfect. They still rebelled. Mother, father, what makes you think you can do better than our heavenly father? 
You know, the job of a Christian parent is actually not to produce godly children. That's not your job. If that was your job, you can then actually do that. If you could actually produce godly children, then you would be God. And here's a little secret. You're not God. The job of a Christian parent is not to produce godly children. The job of a Christian parent is simply be a godly parent. You be godly. You point your children to Jesus. You do all there is. I mean, you still do everything you can to point your kids to Jesus, but not under the false pretense that you do A, B, C, X, Y, Z, and poof, you got a godly child. You do all of that, you pray your heart out, and then let God be God. Amen? It's not your fault. Be set free from shame and guilt because God does not want you to live in the bondage of shame and guilt. Amen? So this is why we need to be conscious about sometimes a teaching that's actually very common among Christians where it's teaching and, and, they, and they keep pointing to, like, you listen to their talks and what they keep pointing to is, well, this happened to me as a child, this happened to me. If you notice my testimony, I mean, certainly I, I, I had things in my life, but honestly, I bet many of you, if you look back, you know, did you have a good relationship with your dad? I bet the majority of you probably said, I didn't have this good relationship with your dad. Oh, so you must all be gay. You see how the lot, I mean, let's think about this, Right? We don't think about these things, but we keep them building and we build these, these false things. And I wish that as Christian teachers, we would stop teaching Freud and just teach Christ. Can I get an amen for that? So we need to help our brothers and sisters who are caught in that, whether they're you know, blaming themselves or they're actually inadvertently blaming parents. It's not the answer. So we need to be convicted. We need to be consistent in three ways regarding uh, relationship, sexuality, and change. And then fourth, uh, I'm sorry, third, we need to be compassionate. I taught at Moody for 12 years, and every semester I had students that confided with me that they're wrestling with their sexuality, and oftentimes they would feel so isolated and not tell anyone. And because of feeling so isolated, they sometimes wrestle with depression and suicide. That should move us. That we have brothers and sisters in Christ who, for whatever reason, feel that they can't share this. We can share other things. So for some, this could be an issue between life and death. So how can we be more compassionate and more uh, loving? Well, first, expect that this is present here, right in our own churches, in our own, ho- in our own homes, in our small groups, in our pews, not be surprised. I still get people that are shocked. Like, oh my goodness, you know, I grew up with this guy, and now we're adults, and, and, and he's sharing with me now that he has same-sex attractions. I, like, I don't know how that happened. He came from a good home. He had Christian parents. He was even homeschooled. <laughs> I'm like, okay, are you really saying that if someone comes come from a good home, they have Christian parents, they're even homeschooled, that they're now exempt from struggling with sin. All right, newsflash. I bet even in a room like this, and all of us here, there might be maybe three or four of you, maybe two or three of you that might be struggling with sin. Don't, don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass any of you, have you like stand out. Like, okay, let's be real. All of us, right, we need to fight temptations and say no to the, our flesh. 
I mean, what's the body of Christ? Are we a group of people that have got it all together, don't have any problems, we meet once a week, we hold hands and we sing kumbaya? Is that what the church is? Or is the church a group of people who know that we are broken and we all need Jesus? I'll just be honest with you. I am broken and I need Jesus. Anyone out there that can relate to that any way, shape, or form? And so let us all hand in hand walk together to him. Not because I can fix you, I can't. Not even because I have all the answers, I don't. But I know someone who does, and his name is Jesus. So we need to expect this is present here. Second, know your position. And when I say position, I'm not talking about just simply saying, it's bad, don't do it. When I say position, I'm talking about, like, what's the main takeaway? What's the main message that, you, that we're trying to give? As I'm here at Calvary Chapel La Habra, this morning, this afternoon, let me tell you what is my main takeaway that, that I hope you get. It's actually really, really simple. It's just two words. Follow Jesus. When your desires are pulling you in one direction, away from God, follow Jesus. When all your friends leave you, follow Jesus. You lose your job, follow Jesus. When, you're, you know, when, you're not, when your health is ailing you, follow Jesus. That is my position, period. Third, maybe you're here because you have a good friend or a loved one or you're watching. You always wonder that, you know, that they're a Christian, but you've thought maybe they're wrestling with this, but you want to let them know that you're there for them so you can walk with them through this. So how do you bring it up? Don't. Imagine if someone came up to you out of the blue and asked, hey, do you have same-sex attractions? Awkward. <laughs> but instead, what you can do is give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, I thank God for you, and I just want you to know nothing can change my love for you. You just created this safe space and invited them, invited them in it. Fourth, let's be a people that says no to the gay jokes and the bullying. There's nothing Christ-like about this. Let's be proactive with our youth and our teens and our preteens and kids. They can be really flippant with their words. That's so gay. That shirt is so gay. A shirt cannot be gay. It's not possible. So how about let's help our kids to learn new words. You know, they got their vocabulary. Grow it. Instead of saying that's so gay, how about that's so Baptist or that's so Presbyterian or something really creative like that. I'm sure you could think of something good. We need to be convicted. We need to be consistent. We need to be compassionate. For, fourth, we need to be complete. And this is complete in our message. We focus upon God's truth because the truth that sets us free. So what is God's truth when it comes to this? It's a sin. Don't do it. Like anything more? No, that's it. It's a sin. When that's all we say is it's a sin, that's equivalent to giving someone a one spiritual law tract. You guys remember the four spiritual laws? It's not the four spiritual law. It's a one spiritual law that goes something like this. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. In case you didn't know, that's not good news. That's bad news only. But think about it. That's essentially all we've been telling the gay community for the past 10, 20, 30 years. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. It's no wonder why the gay community want nothing to do with us. Because we have not been sharing them the good news. We're telling them the bad news only. We're not telling them the complete truth. We're telling them an incomplete truth. And when you tell someone an incomplete truth, that's just as harmful as telling someone a lie. What is the complete truth? 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists ten sins. Two of those Greek words focus upon homosexual behavior. Sometimes we'll look at these verses and say, Look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. When we do that, we conveniently forget about the 
10 other sins, eight other sins. Because if we look at all 10 of them, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. But I praise the Lord, Paul didn't stop there. And he goes on to say, one of my favorite verses of the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That is not good news. That's amazing news. That is news that we can declare to anyone who needs to know about Jesus Christ. So our message has to be redemptive. It needs to focus upon the good news of Jesus Christ. Get this. Our loved ones and friends who identify as gay or trans or whatever it is, LGBTQ+, whatever that is, their main problem is not their sexuality or their gender. That is not their main problem. Their main problem is their need to know and follow and surrender to Jesus. You know that my biggest sin before I came to know Christ, it was not being in a same-sex relationship. My biggest sin was unbelief. That's what separated me from God. You see, if we don't make the right thing the right thing, then we could be turning into legalism. You know, well, well, just do the right thing. That doesn't save you. Jesus needs to be your Lord and Savior. How can you say no to sin if Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior? That has to be First thing first. So if that is the redemptive way, making faith in Christ the primary issue, then how do we practically live that out? How do we be redemptive in walking with a Christian who might struggle with same-sex attractions? How do we Minister well to these individuals it's, who know it's sin. That's kind of some practical things here that I'm going to go over in just a moment. But also after that, I'm going to talk about how do we share Christ with those in the gay community, the majority who don't know Christ. But now there's people that are saying, I can be gay and Christian. Like, what do we do about that? We remind ourselves that 70% of Americans say they're Christian. Wouldn't that be amazing? It's not true. It's not a reality. 70% of Americans are not born again. We need to look at their lives. Are their lives aligning with a life sold out to Christ? If not, then I need to share them the true gospel because they're believing a false gospel. So that's practical things here. But let's start with Christians who have same-sex attractions. Like, let's just say after this weekend you have a close friend that confides with you that they're wrestling with their sexuality. And they're Christian. What would you say or do? Number one, thank them. Thank them for trusting you with this really private matter. Don't freak out. Second, tell them that they're not alone. I know many people who think that they have to go through life and they, you know, all alone with same-sex attractions. And never, no one can ever understand me. And that, that can be a scary thought. But tell them, I don't know all there is to know about this, but I want to walk with you to Jesus. And with this point of telling them that they're not alone... Don't allow Satan to immobilize you. In what way? I often hear people say, I don't know how to help this guy because I don't have same-sex attractions. That might seem logical until we realize that is it true that I need to know all there is to know about a sin struggle before I help someone else struggling with that? Or 
I need to actually commit that sin first before I help someone else struggling with that sin. For example, do you have to first shoot up with heroin to help a heroin addict? Yes or no? Good. No. Do you have to look at pornography to help someone struggling with pornography? Yes or no? No. Do you have to commit adultery to help an adulteress? Yes or no? No, then why all of a sudden for this one particular sin, not any other sin, this one particular, oh, I don't know how to help this guy because I don't, I don't struggle with this. See how the enemy is feeding us these lies to immobilize you? Don't do anything because you can't. That's a lie from the enemy. Here's something really true. If you know Jesus, and if you've ever had any victory over your own sin, you can help another sinner. When people come to you in their time of need and they share with you that they're struggling with sin, you know what they don't need most? They don't need an expert. What they do need most is a friend. And you can be that Christian brother, Christian sister to point them to Jesus. Why? Because we're all in this together. Amen? Third, help remind them that their identity needs to be in Christ. And, um, you know, with, and, and backing up a little bit on, on this, that recognizing, you know, um, that, they're, that they're not alone. There often is this misperception among Christians that somehow people like myself who have, has come out of living as a gay man and, and may possibly, you know, still tempted in this way. A lot of times people are like, well, are you, you know, still tempted with that? I remind people, when a, per, when a, Christian, when a person comes to Christ, are they still tempted with, with sin? We all are. So though this might be one, it's on a list of other things that I struggle with. Why? Because I need to daily say no to my flesh and say yes to Christ. So I'm in the same boat. Like, because I, sometimes people think that I have it harder than everyone else. Like, like I have somehow more faith than any of you because I have to say I can't, you know, I have to say no to this and I can't, you know, whatever it is. I want to be very, very clear. I don't have more faith than any of you. My faith, like a mustard seed. Jesus tells us, if anyone would come after me, anyone. You know in Greek that word anyone, you know what that means? Anyone. Amazing, right? If anyone would come after me, he or she must, like not an option, must do what? Not deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus should cost us everything. If it hasn't, we're following the wrong Jesus. Saying no to self means saying yes to Christ. We can't hold on to ourself and say Christ lives in us. Remember during the service, my mom, Galatians, she, she quoted Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And then what did Paul say? And I no longer live. But Christ, what? Lives in me. We want to still live. 
if you do, if you haven't died, if you haven't crucified yourself, Christ isn't going to be able to live in you. I have been crucified with Christ. And not, so the life that I live today really is no different than any of yours. See, you thought you were coming to hear this talk on sexuality, and all I'm talking about is Jesus. All I'm talking about are sinners who need Jesus and pointing us all to Jesus. We're all in the same boat together, praise the Lord, because now we can do this together. Amen? This is not some really peculiar or strange or weird thing. It's about human brokenness. It's about sinners who need Jesus. Can I get an amen for that? See, we need to put a spotlight where the spotlight needs to go. It's all about Jesus. So, third, identity in Christ. If you have your notes, circle that because if there is one thing that I believe Christians we miss, and I'm talking about Bible-believing, solid Christians who go to Bible-believing, preaching, expository preaching churches, here's the one thing that I think we're missing. We get that this is sin, right? We get that. But the thing that we miss that is actually hindering the way that we understand and reach out to the gay community is this. We don't fully understand the error that they're making where they make their sexuality who they are. We see sexuality correctly, that it's the attractions, the behaviors, the relationships, which is why we say lifestyle, but that, and I'm going to say later, that confuses the issue. It is a lifestyle, but the world doesn't see this as a lifestyle, right? You don't know anyone who identifies as gay and say, this is my lifestyle. No, you know what they say? No, this is who I am, right? They don't say, this is what I feel. They don't say, this is what I do. What do they say? This is who I am. Sexuality is not who we are, it's how we are. But when the world has 100%, and it's even now creeping into the church today, or even people are like, oh, no, you know, this person is gay. No. Gay, straight, bi should not use, be used to define people. All of you in this room, if you don't have same-sex attractions, do not identify as straight. You might have opposite-sex attractions, but don't say that's who you are. Gay, straight, bi, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, define our attractions define our actions. They don't define person. This shift from what I feel to what I do to who I am has created this radically distorted view of personhood. Because when we get this wrong, see, before I came to know Christ, I could not hate my sin without hating myself. I couldn't separate those two. Actually, this is one of the first things that I needed to understand as I came to Christ. I had to be able to hate my sin without hating myself. Now that I know Jesus, I can do that. I can hate my sin without hating myself. Your gay friend, your gay neighbor, your gay loved one, your son or daughter, they cannot separate their sin from who they are, which is why when we say this is sin, what happens? They get so offended, don't they? Yes or no? 
so offended. You know why? Because we know, when we say that this is sin, what do we mean? This is your sinful behavior. So, I mean, that's, why are you getting so sensitive and, you know, so offended by it? You know why? They don't hear us say, oh, what I'm doing is sin. They don't hear us say, oh, what I'm, you know, my desire is sin or my behavior is sin. No, you know what they hear us say? Their whole person from head to toe is reprehensible to us and God. That's why it's so offensive. And we miss that. We don't fully understand how much it is the lie that they're believing. So before you can even talk to someone that you love who identifies as gay, before you talk to them about sinful behavior, we need to help them to realize that this is behavior. You see what I mean? Before we even talk about sinful behavior, we need to be able to separate, help them to see the separation between our behaviors, our desires, from who we are. So if sexuality is not who we are, but how we are, then who are we? We're creating God's image, but we're also all fallen. And because of that, because our human nature is fallen, we need to put our identity in Christ. Why? Because He is the perfect image of God. So our identity should not be in anything else but in Christ alone. Fourth, we need to be realistic. Don't give these false promises, you know, just if you pray really, really hard, you could pray away the gay. No, prayer is important, but I pray and I read the Bible not so I don't have problems. It's when problems do come, I can remain faithful to God. Fifth, we need to um, don't focus on the externals, how people walk or talk or mannerisms. Those may be important, but there's something more important, and that's true change from the inside out. And I want to see that type of change as opposed to the outside in. Sixth, we need to really encourage relationships in the body of Christ. There is sometimes discussions about friendships, and I don't think that's really that helpful because what we need to actually encourage is spiritual family, the local church. Christ has given us freedom, freedom in Christ. So what do we need most as sinners? We need more of Christ, and we need more of the body of Christ. But too often, our solutions when it comes to sexuality, it, it does not bring in the bride of Christ, and also it doesn't really point to Christ. It points to kind of, you know, works righteousness, or it becomes a kind of moralism, you know, kind of like do good, just stop doing it. That's human effort. We need to point everyone to Christ. So what should you do? And we'll just finish with this. Let me first say what you should not do with, with our gay friends. How do we share Christ with them? Here's th some things that you should not do. Do not compare this with an addiction, pedophilia, or murder. Just not a good way to win people to Christ. Second, don't say lifestyle or choice. I just talked about this a moment ago, and this is because I can guarantee our loved ones and friends who identify as gay, lesbian, trans, etc., they make their gender or their sexuality who they are. And when we say lifestyle or choice, that's offensive to them, even though it's correct, but I'm willing to not use a word or two for the sake of winning them to Christ. I'd rather have these more conversations about identity and, and is this really who you are or is it what you feel? And you can agree with them. These are strong feelings you have. These are unchosen feelings you have. 
But just because you have an unchosen, strong, enduring feeling, should it be who we are? Take, for example, this is a good analogy, depression. Is depression chosen? No. Many times people have depression for as long as they remember. And it won't go away, right? People are like, well, I tried for it to go away. I tried depression to go away. So does that mean that it's good? Does it mean that we should act on it? No. Does it mean that it's who you are? If someone says, I am depressed, should we then say that's who you are? Absolutely not. It's something they struggle with. Then what should you do? Oh, I'm sorry, the fourth point. Don't feel the, the need that you always have to debate with people all the time. There's a time for truth, but that is once God softens someone's heart. You don't have to answer every question. Jesus didn't ever answer every question. He once was silent before Pilate. Another time, he, often he would answer a question with a question. So if someone asks you, do you think this is sin? I automatically know. Their, prop, their, their heart is still hardened. Like if I try to convince them, they'll probably shut down or get, we'll get into an argument. Or let's just say for argument's sake, I convince them. If they don't know Jesus, they're still lost. So the more important question I can deflect to, as Jesus often deflected to the more important question, I'm going to deflect to that. So if they say, this is, do you think this is sin? You could say, you don't even believe in God yet, so what does it matter to you right now what God thinks? The more important question is, does God exist? Those questions about the existence of God, good apologetics and good worldview, does God exist, can lead to conversations about Jesus, can lead to conversations about salvation. First things first. So what should you do? Number one, pray. Pray and fast. You guys know the movie War Room? That movie War Room was written by the Kendrick brothers in Atlanta. They work with Chris Fabry, a novelist, to turn their movie script into a novel. The book and movie came out at the same time. We got a complimentary copy of the, of the book by Tyndall House, and we saw that Chris Fabry had dedicated that book to, their, to my mom. Do battle for people who can't even stand in the gap for themselves. Second, listen. Don't be quick to speak, but listen. You see, when you listen to someone... You're not agreeing with them. You're listening. It's how you respond that either you're, you're agreeing or not. Like if someone tells, you know, there's a, maybe you have a gay coworker and they're always telling you about their, you know, their, their, their partner. The other unbelieving coworkers, you know, might say, oh, I'm so happy for you. I can't say that because I'm not. I'm not happy for this person. But you could say, I see you're happy. See the difference? If I say I'm happy for you, I've just affirmed that relationship. But if I say, I, I see you're happy. See the difference? I see you're happy as a way of actually acknowledging their hurt, acknowledging their experience, but I'm not affirming or celebrating that sinful relationship. There's a difference. Um, third, be intentional. Don't be afraid to invite your unbelieving gay neighbor over for dinner. You know, unbelievers are not going to come to us. They're not going to come knocking on your door unless they're Jehovah's Witness or Mormons. I mean, besides that, in general, they're not going to come to us. We need to go to them. Take them a casserole or, or a plate of cookies or whatever it is. 
And I know we're going to think, but if I do that, wouldn't I be condoning their sin? And that's a good question. But last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. I mean, you know, nothing new. You're just eating with them. You're not sinning with them. There's a big difference. Fourth, be patient and persistent. It's going to take time for people to come to know Christ. Lastly, be transparent. Share what God is doing in your life. You could like whip out your Bible to your unbelieving friend and what are they going to do? Probably shut down. But you know what they can't argue with? The work of God in your life. If you know Jesus, you shouldn't be the same as you you were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or even 10 weeks ago. Talk about that. Do you know I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives? I wouldn't have picked up the Bible from the trash can if I didn't see the Bible lived out of my dad's life and my mother's life. I did not leave pursuing same-sex relationships because my parents convinced me I was living in sin. No. They showed me something better. And his name is Jesus. Our job as followers of Christ is to show a dying world out there that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fool's gold in the world, job, career, money, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but following Jesus is best. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Help us by your grace to be more and more like Jesus for your glory. For it's the matchless, precious name of Jesus that we pray. The people of God said, Amen. We have uh, some time for Q&A. You guys have been emailing those in. Um, but I want to, before we jump into this Q&A, I want to show you just a short promo video of um, my, this video series, the, the Holy Sexuality Project. So just we'll tune in here as, as we get ready for the Q&A. When it comes to sexuality and gender, who's influencing your teenager? Peers, public school, social media? God has ordained you as the parent to be the primary influencer for your teens to disciple them on biblical sexuality. But how? My name is Christopher Yuan, and I have created a 12-lesson video curriculum designed just for you, the parent, to watch at home with your teenager. All you need to do is press play, and then follow instructions in the Easy Parent Guide to facilitate discussions in between videos. This puts you back in the driver's seat so you can empower your teenager to understand, embrace, and celebrate biblical sexuality. If you'd like more information, click the link below or go to holysexuality.com. If you'd like um, that information, you could go to holysexualityhere.com and get that information, um, scan it. You can even do that now. Put your name and your email address. Um, and again, I mean, it's, we're, we're really pretty much giving this away for free, $20. Um, so please help us get the word out about that. But we're going to uh, start the Q&A here, and I'm going to put up the slide. You can, uh, this, uh, I'll, I'll leave this up for a moment, and I can go back. If, if we have actually flyers out in the back, so if you would like that um, too, you get that. And as you're scanning that, it's, you're going to go to our landing page, holysexuality.com, and just please put in your name and email address uh, for that so you can get that information. But here is the phone number where you can text more questions, and um, you can um, put more questions. But I think we've got a good amount of questions now for that. So um, why don't we 
start up with, with that. Hi, everybody. My name is Kayla. And we've got the questions that you guys have emailed in or texted in. Um, so the first question we have is, what do you say to someone who says, I was born this way and I can't help choosing this lifestyle? Well, I, I would go over some of the data. And if I was going to show another video, um, is, it's, is Being Gay Genetic, that, that goes over the most recent um, research uh, in 2019, and it really showed that uh, the genetics, it's very minimal in, in its um, influence. I think genetics could play some role, uh, but remember, a lot of times Christians are thrown off. How could we say that genetics plays a role? Well, the, the fall has impacted all of creation. The Bible says that all of creation groans, Right? So all of creation has been impacted by the fall, including our biology, including our genes. Think about this logically. Before the fall, Genesis 3, there was no death, right? Because of the fall came death, which means because of the fall came diseases. There was no disease before. So because of the fall came death, diseases, which also means genetic diseases came about because of the fall. So in other words, because of the fall, even our genes has been distorted, not the way it ought to be, which is why all creation groans. So I'm not surprised that there might be some genetic link, but it's not a genetic, not a gay gene. It's just an influence. Actually, alcoholism has been shown that there's some genetic influence, but it's not 100%. So when people say that, I want to point them to the, for the science, because amazingly, we actually believe in science. It's just I don't believe that science is the arbiter of truth. That's the world... It's, when people say, I believe in science, we need to correct them. Say, no, you believe in scientism. Scientism is a belief that science is the only arbiter of truth. That's scientism. That's the, that's the myth that somehow science is purely objective. Science is not purely objective. Anyone, any scientists or, or doctors, or we know of all the research out there, Bias easily creeps into studies. For example, who funds research? Small mom and pops, like, like they all start a GoFundMe page and like a grandma can give here. Who funds that, by the way? Like, like small businesses? Big corporations. Big Pharma. I mean, those words right there are like anathema for those people who say we believe in science, right? I mean, the, the, those people who believe in science hate big corporations, hate big pharma. Well, who funds science? Big pharma, mega corporations. And, and what, who else funds those? Government, these special interest groups. Who else? Universities. None of them have any agenda. <laughs> if you were to read a, a, a research that was like advocating the incredible health benefits of drinking soda, and you saw who funded it was Coca-Cola, would you believe it? 
Why? Oh, but, but you believe in science. So anyway, so we see that actually the science out there, the research out there is inconclusive. So that's one thing that I would say about answering that. But then I want to go to the Bible because so many times people think, oh, well, the Bible doesn't address this question. They're wrong. Because even though so many people think that they're born gay, and, and they'll even say, well, I didn't choose this. Well, no one chose depression. No one chose suicide ideation. So does it mean that they didn't choose suicide ideation, so we, they should just, we should help them to act on it because that's embracing themselves. You see how the logic, I mean, we, we don't even have to, I don't even have to go to the Bible yet. I could just use basic logic. Depression, that's unchosen. So you should embrace your depression. No, right? I mean, it's crazy. Right, it's a, life, it's a depression, depressing life. Well, and I know some people who have, have depressing lifestyles, but we won't go there. But, so let's, but let's go to the Bible. Does the Bible answer that question? People are born gay. It does. Because even though people think they're born gay, you know what Jesus says? You must be born again. The old is gone, the new has come. You may think you're born an alcoholic. Jesus says you must be born again. You may think you're born a liar, a cheater. You must be born again. You may think you're born a, you fill in the blank. You must be born again. That is not a message just for the gay community. That is a message for the whole world. You must be born again. You see how this is just not an issue of just this one weird, I don't know how to answer this. If we go to Christ, if we go to the gospel, that answers all our questions. Amen? All right. How do you love someone in your immediate family that is openly gay without endorsing what they do? For example, should you attend your child's gay wedding? You know, the interesting thing is like questions like this were like theoretical even five, ten years ago. This is, this is our lives now. And it's not, you know, beginning any, you know, better. Um, we, oh, I always want to ground all my answers in the Word of God. Weddings and marriages... Um, are very tied to Scripture. The Bible begins with a wedding, Genesis 2. The Bible ends with a wedding, Revelation 19. And then in the middle, we have Jesus. His first miracle was where? At a wedding, a wedding at Cana. Um, we have the Old Testament. Like a lot of the prophets, major and minor prophets, they talked about a husband and a wife metaphor. Who was that? Jehovah God was a faithful husband, who was the unfaithful wife? Israel. New Testament. Then we again have this metaphor. Ephesians 5, where who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Who's the bride? Us, the, local, the, the church. So we see, he, and then Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says that all earthly marriage is just a shadow. It's a mystery of the reality of Christ and the church. So actually, the purpose of marriage here on earth is actually to point people to Christ and the body of Christ. So there is a huge emphasis on marriage and weddings. I don't want to trivialize anything that God does not trivialize. This is very important. So this actually helps us to think through not only what's the purpose of marriage, that marriage... All of our marriages point, should point to Christ. But also we need to think through what's the purpose of a wedding? 
Is a wedding just to go to celebrate and just kind of share people and like show them that we love them? Is that really the purpose of going to a wedding? Or should a wedding really be this? That we, our presence at a wedding is to, is to witness the union of two people, but not only that, I believe the purpose of being present at a wedding is to commit to helping this couple hold to their vows. Today, more than ever, we need to fight for marriages. Right? Everything is trying to tear marriages apart. If it's not even husbands and wives trying to, in their own little sinfulness, that, you know, if it isn't the world trying to, you know, this is better, look at her, she's even prettier, she's younger. Or the messages that we have, whatever it is, you're not really happy, leave. We need to fight for marriages, amen? And we need other people to help to fight for that. So our presence at weddings should actually be us saying to the couple, I'm going to fight for your marriage and I'm committing to that, amen? So if there's a couple and they shouldn't get married, I cannot commit to help them fight for their marriage because that's not something that is aligning with God's truth. So our presence at weddings is not just to be present and just to say, I love you. You can do that in many, many other ways. Weddings are sacred. Weddings are special. And weddings is a way to say, I'm going to fight for your marriage and I can't do that if it's a same-sex marriage. So I cannot personally be present at that ceremony. But what's interesting is wedding weekends are not just about those, that two-hour ceremony. As we know, there's a lot of other things going on throughout that weekend. And if, especially if it's your family, there's the reunions, there's the rehearsal dinners. There's all that other stuff. You can be there for that. But for that ceremony, I wouldn't be able to do that. And that's, I think we need to be full of grace, full of truth. Not just grace at the expense of truth. Because if you're like, oh, just go, like whatever your child wants, just do whatever they want. Well, then that's just grace at the expense of truth. And there's no truth in that. We need to be full of grace and full of truth. Because we need to point them, this is not something that pleases God but I can be there for the other things. I mean, and like, for example, you can even get them a gift. I mean, get them gifts. Not one gift, because one gift is for the couple. I, I can't celebrate the couple, but I can celebrate individual people. Get them something significant, like, that has meaning to it. Christian, get them my book. Maybe they'll read it. I mean, God could use it. You never know, Maybe. How do we help someone who doesn't want to change? Well, I mean, I think, isn't that all of us? <laughs> so, I mean, we need to pray and we need to live out the reality of the gospel in our own lives so they can see it. The gospel is not some theoretical thing that has no practical implications. Let's live that out. So that means we need to be Asking ourselves, I mean, has the gospel changed my life? 
That doesn't mean that you're perfect. That doesn't mean that you don't struggle. I'm not saying that. But is there any change? And can people see that? I know some, some parents that are like, my, my kid does not ever want me to, you know, bring up God or the Bible ever again, or, or else they'll never talk to me. And so I asked, if God were to take away our ability to speak, could people still look at our lives and know that we are Christian? Can they see it? We need to live out the truths of the gospel and so others can see that. And so it's, it's quite simple as that. Uh, and I mean, it's, th- there's a wonderful uh, um, c- kind of lecture or talk that my parents gave, and it's online. It's on my YouTube channel, just Christopher, uh, YouTube.com, Christopher Yuan. Uh, but it's called Ordinary Parents, Extraordinary Father. And that gives you just some practical things pointing to Scripture, not pointing to how, this is how you fix your kid, but pointing to what has helped them in their own daily renewal that can help our kids to see Jesus. If a gay person doesn't believe in the Bible as God's word, how do you explain to them that the way that they're living is not God's plan? So I wouldn't focus on um, the way that they're living isn't God's plan. I would focus on their unbelief first. And I would live out, this is why, you know, the Bible talks about the different soils. Remember how you have the good soil, and then you have the soil with a lot of rocks, you have the soil with a lot of weeds, and then all the, the, so how do you, you know, you have lots of, you know, this person would be someone that's not good soil, lots of rocks or weeds. Well, before we do evangelism, I think there needs to be pre-evangelism. And some of that pre-evangelism is taking those rocks out of there and those weeds by God's grace. Taking, you know, that out there to help prepare it to become good soul, to receive the seed. And what's the seed? The gospel. So I think there's a lot of pre-evangelism that needs to occur before we actually evangelize and preach the gospel. And some of that pre-evangelism is developing a relationship, but also living out that, the reality of that gospel so that, you know, they'll be able to, there's just a lot of these things that are getting in their way of hindrances. And as we kind of, um, faithfully, you know, live that out, they'll be able to kind of see that. Is that, I, now I can't remember what was the question. What was it? Yeah, you answered. Okay, good. Okay. Um, so a lot of times teenagers will mess around or joke with their friends mm. in a culturally appropriate but biblically inappropriate way. For example, girls telling their girlfriends that they're hot or calling them wifey, etc. How would you advise parents to encourage or exhort their children to interact in an appropriate and godly way with their friends of the same sex? Well, I would say, um, like, what is it that can really glorify God? You know, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know, you look beautiful today. I mean, that's, that's but like, hot and beautiful can't, well, and it depends on how you use that beautiful, like, oh, you look beautiful there. You know, that depends on how you say it, I guess. But like hot is a very, um, it's objectifying. And, and I would say, you know, and that, that term is definitely a term that kids wouldn't know today. We don't objectify people and we don't joke about that either. Let's like, let's celebrate people's good characters, you know, stuff like that. That's what I would, you know, be teaching our kids. Uh, because if, if all I'm saying is, you know, you look beautiful today, and then all of a sudden, you know, maybe, heaven forbid, you get older and you're no longer hot, so have you lost value, you know? And so it's training kids early now. Um, but also, let's, um, 
we want to foster good, strong, same-sex relationships and friendships that aren't romantic, that aren't sexual, but ones that really elevate and glorify Christ because Christ can be elevated through our friendships. Um, and if we're just leaving at this really shallow level, then um, I don't think we'll be able to really dig deep because I think when we look, you know, if we look at our friends, oftentimes that can be a barometer for where we are spiritually even. You know, show me your friends and I'll show you your spiritual health. Um, and I think that's something that we can challenge our kids. Um, and, and, I mean, we shouldn't just assume just because your kids said a sinner's prayer that they're going to be really walking closely with the Lord. And that's, that's not abnormal. I mean, kids, you know, there could be a teenager that did it, and did it, and four years later in college, life is totally different, right? And because it's often when they go off to college is when they need to either make their faith their own or not. Um, so challenging our kids to make sure that uh, all their relationships, not even the dating ones, even just the friendships, are ones that actually kind of magnify um, Christ. You know, don't just say you're a Christian, but let's actually, you know, live that out even through the relationships that we have. How do you share the gospel with someone who has grown up in the church and knows God's word, maybe with some misinterpretation, who is gay and believes that they're born that way? Well, I would, I mean, it depends, because some of, these, some of these people will still say that they're Christian, but I would say many of them are just totally turned off by, by, by the Bible, and they're just, they don't want anything to do with the Bible and anything to do with Christianity. Um, I would say that um, the, it's okay for now to not make the sexuality the front burner issue. It's okay to make it the back burner issue. Your friend is going to want to make it the front burner issue. Why? Because that's their whole world. That's their core identity. That's everything to them. So they want to keep making it the front issue where we know that's not the front issue. What's the front issue? Belief in Christ. So, but of course, they're going to be turned off. And so we, and they may be even turned off because of their perception of the way the, the Christians are treating them. And it could be true. I mean, they could have a lot of their former Christian friends that have just cut them off for whatever reason. And, and I mean, I need to kind of, not to justify, but sometimes there is a sense where we do need to cut people off. Like if they're just really toxic or whatever, I mean, and it could be not saying I'm cutting you off, but just putting some distance. I think there needs to be sometimes healthy distance for people that are toxic. I mean, that's just pretty common sense. So I'm not like... And when we're putting a little bit of distance there, then people are like, oh, you're cutting me off. And it's like, no, I'm not cutting you off. It's because you're cursing me out every time. And I just, you know, anyway. So, but if this person is someone that's close and it's like, I mean, if, you're, if it's your blood relatives, you can't, you know, cut them off or whatever. But in that type of thing, I would be like not preachy, not talking like, always, you know, going to Scripture and all of that. Not, not that that's a bad thing, but there needs to be pre-evangelism because this person who might have been sort of good soil now because of all these bad experiences and identifying as gay and maybe some of these hurts or perceived hurts from the church, they've become bad soil now. There's tons of rocks and weeds, and, and so there's this process of us just continuing to reach out. Um, and it can be simple. So parents, this could be your son or daughter where they're like, 
you know, they're kind of hardened, um, what can you do? It can be as simple as every other day sending a text to your child, I love you. How hard is that? Like my mom sent me these postcards. Like this is before text. She was, I mean, I think postcards are like, you know, modern, modern day text. She would send me postcards, and they were just really simple, you know, love you forever. You guys know what, where that's from? Who, who, who knows where that's from? Who does not know what that's from, love you forever, mom? You, you don't, don't know where that's from. How many of you guys do know what that's from? Those of you that don't know, look around you. Do you guys still have the, the, the picture book? Share it with the people who don't know. Or you can actually go online. Write that down, love you forever, mom. Um, it's, I think it's, it's a YouTube um, where people are reading it. It's a kid's book that um, um, love, love you forever, like you for all, always. Um, forever. Uh, what is it? Yeah, or, but there's one more line. Love you forever, like you for always. Um, as, oh, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. Um, so this the mother with a baby, you know, was singing this to, to the, the, the baby. And then he grows older, and then he grows a teenager, and, like, he doesn't, you know, is ignoring the mom and stuff like that. And then, um, and then the you know, goes off to college, and, he's in the, and then, you know, grows up, you know, it's a son, and then he's too busy for mom, and then, of course, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's a tearjerker, so, of course, then, like, the mom's sick, and she's about to die, and so the, you know, the son goes to the mom, and then, uh, like, uh, she sings it to him, but she couldn't finish because she was so weak, and then he, she, uh, she passes away, and then, um, but like the son was singing it to the mom. And then see, I, um, and then, and then the mom, and then, and then, you know, the mom passes away, and then the son then goes home and reads it to his daughter. So, whew. like I had no idea. I'm like, this is so corny, love you forever, whatever, mom. You know, it's so dumb. And then like when I came back to know the Lord, she showed that to me. Whew. I was like wrecked for like a year. Like I was just a mess. So those of you that don't know, you got to get it and you have to read it daily to your kids. <laughs> like ingrain it to them like, or, or your grandkids. Like they're going to think it's corny until they get kids of their own. Um, but isn't it good, right? Like anyway, it's, it's so, so good. Where was I? Um, <laughs> We have another question. <laughs> yeah, something, yeah. But um, so, like, just help our kids, like, love you forever. Oh, parents, do not follow that ever up with but. I love you, but in your kid's mind, you've just erased whatever you said. Here's two, two options. One, you can say, I love you, tell me more. Just listen. Remember, listening doesn't mean you're approving. Listen, just say, I love you, tell me more. Or say, I love you and. I love you and I love you so much to tell you. See the difference? Not but. There shouldn't ever be, there's no but to love. 
especially a mother's love, right? I love you and there's a big difference. So um, all of it. And, and I would encourage you, you know, parents texting, you and your husband and maybe your children that are walking with the Lord and get like an army of people that will weekly text to this person, I love you. I'm thinking about you. That's going to be planting seeds. I guarantee you that. All right. On that note of mothers, there's a question about a mom. It says, my mom attends a same-sex church and says that her heart doesn't convict her, and she has prayed for so many years that if homosexuality is a sin, then God should reveal it to her. Mm. So how can I answer that? Well, um, a few things on... Not, uh, um, probably what this means is, is a, a gay-affirming church, because um, that would be weird to have a church with only one sex. But, um, so, but it's probably a, a, like a gay... Isn't it funny how people change, use, change words? Because it's actually, I don't, affirming sounds good. Like this is a rejecting. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting biblical sexuality. Just like pro-choice, that sounds good, but it's pro-murder. Um, so, you know, we need to realize that the term, it's, it's rejecting biblical sexuality. These churches and denominations, the problem, their biggest problem is not their view on sexuality. Their biggest problem is rejecting a, rejection of the gospel. They do not have a high view of Scripture, which is why I love Calvary Chapels. High view of Scripture. Can I get an amen? Right? But it's the churches that have walked away from biblical sexuality, you can trace it a decade or more before where they've walked away from the authority of Scripture. Anytime you walk away from the authority of Scripture, the gospel then changes. Like for these churches, you will, if, you, if I ask you, whoever asked this question, like, what's their main message? You were to watch all their messages. It is not about sinful man in need of a Savior who is Jesus. You know what it is? Be a good person like Jesus was a good person. That's essentially, you know, fight for the marginalized, fight for the oppressed. It's not a bad thing. But if the gospel is just about taking care of the marginalized, Jesus wouldn't need to die on a cross. So we need to focus upon, like, you know, with, with this issue. But, you know, when people say, well, if, you know, I want, I want you know, if God, um, you know, if this is sin, then God would, you know, convict me or, or, or reveal this to me. We need to say, is, I mean, the enemy probably prayed that prayer. Satan, demons. They're still not convicted. You know, um, atheists, many people, just because, you know, we have a sin nature and we need to realize actually God has revealed it. Like, that's probably what I would say. God has revealed it to us. That revelation is called the Bible. You can pray and pray and pray, and he's already answered this 2,000 years ago, and that answer came with this. The complete, full Word of God. It was completed back when the apostles finished writing this. John, Revelation, that was when this Bible was complete. And His Word reveals clearly that this is sin. Now, are there going to be people who call themselves Christians who, who 
envelope themselves as angels of light and say, did God really say? That begins in Genesis 3. Um, so, you know, I would say, you know, what I would just focus on, you know, what is the gospel? I would actually uh, encourage them, let's read the Bible together because I can almost guarantee the, these churches like that and people that are going to the churches do not read the Bible. But we can encourage that and say, let's, let's study Philippians together. Let's memorize Psalm 19 together. Because when this person is actually consuming the Word of God, the Holy Spirit has more to work with. With the onslaught of the transgender ideology in our schools and medical institutions going after our children as young as three, how can I, as a grandmother, begin a dialogue with my young grandchildren aged six months and two and a half years old? Well, um, pray for us because we are, um, you know, this video series is for teens. Our next is to do something for grade school kids. Uh, but there needs to be resources for even little kids, even younger than grade school. Uh, but we hope to do something for that in teaching our kids about what is sex, gender, what is, you know, marriage, these basic things that are just out, you know, out, out the window. Um, but having these, th there are some Christian uh, resources that's helping us, uh, not a lot, but helping our, our, you know, and I mean, one thing is it depends on if, you know, I, I think this was saying their, their granddaughter or grandchildren, you know, are our children walking with the Lord? Because if our children are completely anti-Christianity and we're doing this, um, I mean, if, they're, if the children are okay with this, even though they're not walking with the Lord and doing that, great. Unfortunately, these parents are kind of already instilling the wrong views, and then we're trying to, so we're, it's, this, it's this battle. Hopefully, you know, that there is where the grandparents are allowed to do this, and that's, that would be wonderful. Um, but helping, you know, kids to see that there is male and female, there is there is goodness in that and um, pointing to like what is the definition of marriage and stuff like that. See, these are all things that you don't even have to touch on sex. You don't have to talk, touch on the act of sex. You're just talking about we're male and female, we're boys and girls and praise the Lord, we're all different. Um, and focusing on we all have thoughts and feelings. God has given us the ability to think. God has given us the, the ability to have emotions. But not every feeling I have is good. That needs to be taught because our kids are being taught totally different. If you have a feeling or a desire, then it's good. It's your truth. But with little kids, here are four things that I think need to be emphasized with little ones. This has nothing even to do with sexuality, but it's creating a good Bible, a biblical foundation where I'm already, I'm talking about four things here, but I'm already assuming you're talking about God and salvation. So this is assuming you're doing that. Here's the four things. Number one, help our little ones understand the doctrine of sin. When I say doctrine of sin, I'm not talking about sin. I, I hope you're already talking to your kids about what is sin, but that's sinful behavior. The doctrine of sin is about we're all falling. We all have a sin nature. None of that is by choice, and it's all from birth. That has to be taught to our kids. Not just sinful behavior, but we're all sinners from birth. We all have a sin nature. That's important. Doctrine of sin, number one. Number two, the reality of temptations. 
Again, we talk to our kids about sinful behavior, but sometimes we don't help our kids to see that you're going to be tempted. There's a difference between sin and temptation, right? That's before sin. We're all going to be tempted. A lot of times we teach our kids about sin, but we don't teach them about the reality of temptation. So when our preteens or teenagers, they are tempted, they freak out. They're like, oh my goodness, I'm sinning when they don't know the difference. You're just being tempted. Resist temptations and you won't fall into sin. So doctrine of sin, reality of temptations, right? Everyone's going to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. Then the third is the gift of grace. You might be tempted, you might give in to temptation and sin, but grace is there. God's grace is there for the sinner, for forgiveness, and God's grace is there to redeem us and restore us. So just as God extends grace to us, we need to extend grace to sinners. So that means when you see that person sinning or you see your uncle who's gay in a gay relationship, we know that he's living in sin, but we need to extend grace. But why? That leads to the fourth one. And, and, the, and this kind of assumes salvation, that you're talking to them about salvation. But when it comes to salvation, we sometimes miss the fruit of salvation, which is repentance. Salvation is not just poof, I'm saved. There's repentance and salvation are tied together. It's the fruit of salvation, repentance. And so once our kids have that, our little ones have that solid foundation of understanding the doctrine of sin... The reality of temptations, the gift of grace, and the fruit of repentance, you have this really solid foundation to understand any of these sins, whether it's same-sex sins, whether it's, you know, transgenderism, all of that. You know, all of us, we all are sinners. That's the doctrine of sin. We're all tempted in different ways. Some people are tempted to try to be a boy when they're a girl, or some are tempted to have sex with a boy when they should be, you know, it's, it's only to their spouse, or whatever it is. We're all tempted. The issue isn't that you're tempted. The issue is that you're giving in to that temptation. But then there's God's grace. Jesus came, and we want people to accept that gift of grace of salvation. Why? So that they would be saved and express Repentance, the fruit of salvation. Is being gay in some cases a precursor to changing genders? Hmm. Um, Yes and no. No and yes. Um, I would say for men, not so much. For women, it could be more. Why? And I mean, I I don't want to offend anyone. Men and women are different. (laughs) Isn't that scary? Like you can't even say that anymore without apologizing. Men and women are different. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Like we're going to stand on that truth here at Calvary Chapel La Habra. Men and women are different. I mean, do we have some similarities? Yes, we do, but we're different. And that difference is not just like a theoretical thing. It's biological, it's anatomical, it's hormonal, it's neurological, it's all these things. So uh, men and women are different. And um, now I'm forgetting the question. I'm getting, what was it? 
Is being gay in some cases a precursor? Yes, a precursor. So men and women are different. So for men, there is a sense where our sexuality is a bit more fixed. In other words, um, men, they usually have a type that they're attracted to, and like it doesn't change like over time. It's just that's like, here's a good example. Um, I saw this good meme about uh, the difference of men and women, and it was two machines. Um, one, it was a machine, it was very simple. It just had a knob on, off, man. Underneath that was a picture of another, like a machine, and it had like all these gears and dials and lights. Woman. I think not only does that describe men and women well, it describes male sexuality and female sexuality really well. For men, either they're attracted to it or not, either they're aroused or not. Like you can't foster, it doesn't happen. So here's, here's some, um, you know, evidence. I love talking to couples that have been married for a while and asking like, how did you guys meet? But I always ask, like, the husband first and then the wife. Because you get different stories. You know, for men, it's often, man, I saw my wife, like, and she was the one. Like, she was beautiful, and oh my goodness, just, it was incredible. I knew it. Then you hear the wife's story. You know, like, he was a dork. I didn't really like him at first. But like he grew on me, like, you know, you know, he was nice and he was funny and he grew on me, which is why like men, we like actually have a chance, you know? <laughs> so for male sexuality, it's like either you're attracted or you're not. It doesn't like happen over time. For women, it's complicated, you know, like. You could be not attracted at first, but then after a while, this person treats you really nice. They wine and dine you, or they just treat you like a princess, or they're just funny. Whatever it is, like, and then that attraction grows. Male sexuality and female sexuality are different, and that's okay, and I think it's meant to be like that. So, which is why I have heard several stories of women that says, I'm not lesbian. Or I had no interest in, in, the, in girls. But I went through this really bad breakup. Or I had this really horrible divorce and, or abuse or whatever, all those things. And then I had this girlfriend who was just there for me. She knew me. She was like my soulmate, my best friend. And we fell in love. You know, over, you know one night we were, you know, in bed together. I don't know how that happened. Anyone hear a story like that before? It's not uncommon. But think about this. I've never heard a story like that from men, ever. You know, me and my hunting buddies, we were out hunting deer one night and like in my tent and like, I don't know how it happened. Like, <laughs> I've never heard that before. It's not going to happen. Why? Men and women are different. Amen? In the same way, I think gender, like sexuality, is similar. Like men, it's like, I'm, I'm a man, you know? There's no, it's not like, it's just, it's really simple, A and B. But for women, there's this more, it's about this feeling. This is why I think you, you see when it comes to transgenderism, a huge increase of preteen teenage girls that are saying, I'm trans. 
Because for them, the, just as sexuality is kind of fluid, I think gender, remember, gender is not biological, it's psychological. That's one thing to note. I have a whole talk on that. Sex is biological and objective. Gender no longer means the same. It used to mean the same, but now the world is like making them mean two different things. Sex is biological and objective. Gender is psychological and subjective. How I view myself, how I think, how I feel. And so for women, there can be this fluidity. So yes, for men, I don't see where it's like, oh, I become gay and then now I'm a woman. But for women, it is very, like actually I hear trans, trans people who identify as trans men who see their lesbian friends are like, oh, you know, you'll be trans in a few more years. And that often is the case. Um, so I do see that where basically it's just blurring the lines. Once you start blurring the lines on sexuality, then you start blurring the lines on everything else. All right, and then we have one more question. Um, and it is, when my gay married adult child and their spouse come to visit me, should I request that they sleep in separate beds? Mm, great question. So I would say... Um, you know, our children, we always want them to feel like home is a place where they, they can always come. It's a haven. So, yes, our, our children can always come home. And I would even have their partners come as well. But just as if I had a daughter who was um, living with her boyfriend and they're not married, they're in a sinful relationship, come. Come home for Thanksgiving, both of you but I would put them in separate rooms because their relationship is not something that aligns with God's word and, and God's, God's word. And our home, you know, is going to live by God's standards. So I would invite both of them, the, you know, the gay son and his partner. But yes, I would just put them in separate rooms. But if they want to stay some, somewhere else, that's fine. But I would, I would definitely have them stay in, in the same room. So I think, I think that is important. Um, I would also um, say that um, and, and kind of have a little bit of a boundary there as well about PDA, public displays of affection. But my reasoning isn't that, oh, I don't want that gay stuff to go on, which is true. But my reasoning is it's not appropriate for any couple to be doing all that PDA in a family reunion, right? I mean, if, if, if you had like an uncle and an aunt and all they're doing is like kissing and stuff like that, I would say, stop that. You know, I mean, you've got a room where you could do that. Like, this is about the family reunion, you know? I mean, if I had a son and his girlfriend, and even if it's his fiance and they're kind of just like all kissing and stuff, it's like, no, I mean, that's, it's, it's just not appropriate. I would say the same thing like if I was a youth pastor, because youth pastors sometimes say that, like if I have, you know, what do I do with this, you know, these two women, they're lesbian, you know, high school students, they're always come in and they're all, all over each other. I would say, actually, I would have the same rule for if it's a guy and a girl and they're all kissing in the back and I'll be like, no, we're, we're, I can't control what you do outside these walls of the youth group. Same thing. I can't control what you do outside the home. But here, you know what this is? We're celebrating each other right now. Like we're, we're going to have fun and we're, there's a family reunion. Same thing with youth group. We're, we're focusing upon God. So as long as you're here, no, no one should be 
putting out. So that's the emphasis is, is making it like consistent across the board um, so we're not like elevating one above the other that if I have a daughter living with her, with her boyfriend, I would kind of do that same thing as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for answering all of our questions. You guys, why don't we give him a hand? Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank him for coming out. And um, his books are still out back, I believe, and you guys are free to go. Thanks for coming.